You're listening to CardiCast, a podcast about galleries, libraries, archive and museums, brought to you by New Cardigan, an Australian-based glam community. Hello, I'm Nick McGrath, chatting today with Valerie Love, who's the Curator of Oral History and Sound at the National Library of New Zealand. I realise this is a very brand new job for you. You just started this new role and it's a one-year secondment. Is that correct there, Valerie? Yes, that's correct. I'm really interested in this um, new role that you've taken on at the National Library of New Zealand. Could you explain a little bit about it for me? Definitely. So it is very new. I've only been in this particular role for about two weeks now, so I'm still just sort of finding my way through. But I've worked at the National Library for about nine years um, at the Alexander Turnbull Library, which is basically the archives and special collections for Te Puna Mataranga o Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Basically, the curator oral history and sound role is a new addition. So we have had a curator oral history and sound for a while, and we still have that person in that role, but they've realized that the oral history and sound collections are actually quite massive. And in addition to the analog cassette tapes and materials collected over the years, most, if not all, of the incoming oral history and sound collections are born digital. And so for the past four years, I've been the senior digital archivist at the library. And so we realized that we were accumulating this backlog of unprocessed born digital materials. And so they decided it would be good to actually get somebody in there to really focus on those born digital oral history collections because they're just so rich and wonderful. These contemporary voices of people, you know, telling their stories and their life histories. And so it's really, really exciting. Like I'm super excited to be in the role and yeah, really looking forward to it. Oh, it sounds, oh my goodness. I can't wait to see where you go and what your journey will be in the next 12 months. Will part of the role be you interviewing you know um, different people or is it more just working with the backlog like you said the legacy collection or will you be looking at kind of creating new collections looking for gaps in the collection that kind of thing yeah so most of the role will be looking at the materials that we already have and making those more accessible so making sure that they are described and findable online making sure that the digital files themselves are ingested into the national digital heritage archive and working with oral historians who are currently out there creating oral history projects that they might want to deposit with the library so my role won't be actively um, interviewing although i do have oral history experience and i have conducted several projects in the past but it really is sort of um, managing the collections we have and working with donors and researchers. When you're sort of saying that you're making it available online, I guess I'm, I'm assuming there'll be sort of a lot of legalities, of course, around, you know, what information you can sort of put out there into the world. I'm also assuming that there's a lot of protocols in terms of when this sort of oral history material is collected in the first place. You know, there's a lot of paperwork and you know signing off on in terms of intellectual property and that kind of thing is that is that correct I'm not very familiar with oral history work myself but I know a lot a lot of people that do that work but I'm guessing our listeners will be fascinated to sort of hear a bit more of that side of things as well 
Yeah, definitely. And actually, let me clarify. So when I say um, making materials discoverable online, what I actually mean is the metadata about yes. them. That so the sense. finding aids and the um, descriptions of the oral history collections. And so the oral histories themselves are not available online. And that really is for privacy and copyright reasons. So a lot of these materials are very, very contemporary. Um, we have oral historians working around Aotearoa that are depositing interviews as they go and as they're working on projects. Many of these projects will turn into books or other um, pieces of work, sometimes dissertations. And so although they're coming to the Turnbull Library to be archived and available, many of them are not available just yet. But what we are trying to do is make sure that we have a clear a clear record of what the Turnbull Library has and how people can apply to access it if it is something that has access restrictions from the donor or the interviewees, or if it is material that is actually unrestricted, but you still do need to come to the secure reading rooms in order to listen to it. We'll have to share some links in the show notes as well, just for our listeners to sort of explore the catalogue, I guess, and check out what you have the metadata that's up there at the moment and and look forward to seeing you know as it grows in the, in the coming years I guess yeah absolutely that would be fantastic you've been the senior digital archivist since back like you said for the last four so December 2017 but before that you were the research librarian for digital materials and before that the deputy leader in arrangement and description so you've had a you know you've had a really interesting career path at your current organization um, can you sort of explain how that all came about a little bit, you know, how you ended up there in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's interesting because a lot of times people think that I that I moved to Aotearoa for the job, but actually I moved to Aotearoa because I was in a long distance relationship with somebody from Wellington and we decided that um, we didn't want to be long distance anymore. So I actually moved to Wellington without really knowing what I was going to be doing, but I had worked as an archivist and curator in the States before making that move and hoped that I would be able to get into, um, you know, glam sector work here in Aotearoa, but my backup plan, if that didn't work, was I'm also a yoga teacher. And so I thought, okay, well, if that doesn't work, then maybe I'll just teach yoga for a year or, you know, shift careers or, you know, whatever. But I was really, really lucky in that when I first moved to Wellington, I was able to get a, a role at Carter Observatory, which is basically a space museum and planetarium. And so I worked there um, on their education team for the first year. And then after that year um, contract ended, there happened to be a couple of openings at the National Library, at the Turnbull Library for digital specialists. So one of those job openings was a digital archivist role. And one one of them was a research librarian for digital materials on the arrangement and description team. And I applied for both of those roles because they both sounded really interesting. The digital archivist role was on the digital collecting team. So they worked pretty closely with the curatorial services in terms of bringing digital collections into the library and doing the technical analysis of that material to make sure that it was suitable for long-term preservation. And the research librarian digital materials were the 
the folks who would create the finding aids and descriptive record for the digital materials and help ingest it into the digital preservation system. So those two roles, although they were on different teams, were really closely aligned. And so I was fortunate to get one of those roles. And my good friend, Jessica Moran, who is now Associate Chief Librarian at the Turnbull Library, was hired at that same time as me to be the digital archivist. And that was actually really, really great. We started within about a month of each other at the, the library. We were both sort of new from the US. So it was actually really nice having that solidarity there um, starting together at the library and working quite closely. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like it was almost fate that it was meant to be. I love it when those sorts of beautiful moments happen where it just sort of everything falls in place. I love that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's been really... I've really, I've had a really wonderful experience working at the Turnbull Library and working at the National Library. And you're exactly right that I've had a few different roles there because there have been different opportunities for secondments or just sort of working with other teams. And so it's been, I've been really fortunate to be able to be on now three different teams within the library, really getting to work with different elements of the workflow and, and different types of, of collections, but really keeping that born digital focus the whole time. As you said, you, you come from the US originally. So I was just looking at, you studied Bachelor of Arts in Italian language and literature, and then went on to do a master's in library and information studies and archival administration at the University of Wisconsin. So I guess, yeah. yeah, like I was just really intrigued, like for a lot of people moving, in, if you want to work in the glamour sector you might have to move overseas or interstate or you know to go for those jobs and those sort of dream jobs but I, I was really intrigued when you were explaining that it was sort of like you you went to Wellington first and then like this amazing career you know path has happened which is brilliant but I guess my question is can you sort of tell me a little bit more about what it was like you know working in the glamour sector in the U.S.? So I started working in libraries and archives as an archives assistant at my university. So it was a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, Smith College, and it had this really good collection of women's studies and, and women's archives um, because it was a women's college and, and still is. And so I was working in the college archives, just, you know, refoldering, you know, some of the collections and making photocopies of newspaper clippings onto acid-free paper and retrieving things from the shelves when researchers came to use collections. So that was just, you know, like a student job my sophomore year of college. But one of the things that I was assigned to do was to rehouse the Sylvia Plath papers. And I just remember being so struck by how cool that was that a those papers exist and they're they're being taken care of and then just to have these letters you know to open a folder and have these letters that she wrote was just incredible and it felt like such a privilege and such an honor to be able to you know take them out of their well-used folders and then put mm -hmm. them in these brand new beautiful acid-free folders so the collection <laughs> looked really nice and and I guess that just sort of got me hooked on archives to be honest I just loved being able to get these glimpses into people's lives and you know sort of 
you know, not that you, people always think, oh, you spend so much time like reading the materials and you mm. really don't, but it's mm. still just, it feels like such a privilege to even be able to have them in your hands, even in these passing moments of, of doing the work of them. So I worked in the archives as a student assistant, and then I studied Italian language and literature and art history, which are not incredibly practical subjects, but I loved them. And so I was trying to figure out, well, okay, what do I do with those degrees? And I didn't know. I didn't have an answer to that question. But I thought, well, I've really enjoyed this whole library archival thing. So maybe, maybe that's the next step. My parents were pretty adamant that I go directly to grad school. I was actually quite keen to take a year off, but they were pretty insistent that I, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, sort of do something, uh, yeah, something with myself. Yeah. So I applied to library and archives programs and ended up at the University of Wisconsin. And it just, it just did seem to be a natural fit. It's, it's not like I had any aspirations to be an archivist when I was growing up. I didn't even really know what, know what that yes. was. <laughs> growing up, I wanted to be a marine biologist. But, um... Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. I'll have to talk to you about that in a second. <laughs> that is so crazy because I was going to go to, I was thinking of considering going to the Captain Cook um, Uni in Cooktown in Northern Queensland when I was at school. So yeah, that's interesting talking about, you know, those that create that moment, like the fork in the road, where it's like one way or the other, which way am I going to go? So for me, it was like art history, history, kind of that path, archaeology kind of. And then the other path was biology, marine biology, chemistry. So it was weird. And, then, and so that's really fascinating that you had that same kind of moment. But and so he did history and kind of that that interest in knowing people's stories and like I think that's something that like social justice, um, digital preservation archives has like is something that is thread through all all of the years of your work I think. But does it come down to telling stories and and the people in the archives that really make you feel passionate about what you do? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like I've always been really interested in whose stories end up in archives and and who is really, you know, like who you're able to find really easily and then what voices aren't there or are there but they're hidden because they haven't really been amplified in the way of people in power or um, you know. So it's I've always been really really fascinated by who you find in the archives and and who you have to dig deeper to find. And yeah, I have had sort of this interesting experience of often just getting assigned these social activism collections. Um, so at Wisconsin, I worked on a set of papers that were anti-Vietnam War activism. There were big protests at the University of Wisconsin, as there were in lots of places in the, the 60s and 70s. And so there was this collection of ephemera, basically, that hadn't been processed. And so I was able to work on that collection and describe it and house it, which was, again, this really amazing thing. And then that helped me to get my, my first role out of library school, which was working for two years as a project archivist at the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis. And so I was working on civil rights materials there, which was actually really interesting, like being a white woman, which is how I identified at the time. Now I'm, I consider myself more non-binary. Non but at the time I was this, you know, this, this white person from, you know, from the Northeast, and then I'd moved down to Memphis, and I was working on these these collections, and you know, was always 
quite aware that I was was an outsider processing them and wanted to make sure that I was actually being true to the materials and, and making sure that I wasn't bringing my own you know, or trying not to bring my own biases and my own sort of stuff into the work that I was doing. Yeah, it was really amazing to work on these collections. And again, it was a real privilege. I've always sort of felt that, that, that being able to work on, on collections and hear people's stories and, you know, see the, the documents that people have made to represent their lives is such a privilege. Mm. Um, so always treating those materials with, you know, the utmost respect. So that was a two-year project archivist role. And then after that, I ended up taking a little bit of time, like a little bit of time off. At the time I was, well, what was I doing? Now I'm trying to remember. <laughs> it's hard to think but back I, um, sometimes, it's, you know what I mean? When you start looking back and you're like, well, what's, what happened between that, that point and that point, you know? Yeah, exactly. So in 2007, I began working as the curator for human rights and alternative press collections at the University of Connecticut. And that was really interesting because there was a really strong human rights um, studies academic program there at the university. So they were trying to build these archival collections to support the curriculum. And then they already, again, had all of these, you know, student activism materials and newspapers and, and things like that. And we're also trying to build up some of their LGBTQ and queer and rainbow community collections. So again, it was a really good yeah, it was a really good fit, but it was also really, really hard. I realized in that role that I wasn't actually very well suited to just working with human rights materials. It was really, really heavy. I'm quite an empathetic person. And after a couple of years of just, you know, especially working with some of the photographic materials where it's, you know, documentation of these atrocities, and I just... I, I realized I needed more balance, you know, that as much as it felt like I was doing good and important work, it wasn't actually that healthy for me to have that strong of a focus on some of the, you know, the, the worst things in humanity. Gosh, I can imagine, honestly, like, did, did you have any mentors or sort of people that would support you in that role? Because I can imagine it would have taken a heavy load, like you said. Did you feel supported in the role or...? Yes and no. So in the beginning, I did because the person who hired me, who was the director of the archives, was really good and served sort of that mentoring role. But then when he retired, there was nobody who really like took over that space. So it was definitely one of those things where the first couple of years in the role were you know, pretty good and exciting. And, you know, and then the second couple of years were, this is actually really hard, and I'm not necessarily having the the support that I need. And that was part of the reason why it was a really easy decision to just sort of leave that role and move to Aotearoa, instead of, you know, because I was also in a long distance relationship at this point, and the way that the US was, same sex relationships weren't recognized at the federal level for immigration purposes. So, my partner, um, who is who is now my wife, she wouldn't have been able to have moved to the U.S. to be with me. So it was sort of, you know, my moving to Aotearoa was really the the easy choice, and it turned out to be the best decision I've ever made. To be honest, thinking about you know working with sometimes traumatic kind of material in in the collections that you work with, did you think that did you find a balance outside of work? Like you said that you're also a yoga teacher. Were you a yoga teacher at that time as well, or 
Yeah, well, that's interesting. So not when I started the role, but I began practicing yoga as a way of centering myself and sort of just letting go of the, the day and the collections. And then as I sort of started thinking, okay, do I actually want to be an archivist? Do I actually want to be working with these things all the time? Maybe, you know, and started thinking about that international move, I thought, okay, well, let's, let's do the yoga teacher training as well. So that way I've got something else. But yoga and archives actually work really well together. Like it's, you know, I hear lots of stories of people, and I've had this experience too, where you're like lifting a box and you're just not paying attention to how you're lifting it. And then it's really easy to like throw out your back or, you know, oh injure boy. a shoulder or something. Yeah. So yoga actually helped me to just get a little bit stronger and, and be more mindful of how I was moving in the stacks and how I was, how I was, you know, like moving boxes because that's that's part of the job you know you're like moving these boxes of stuff oh, um, so true like what you're saying because I just literally went to the physio today so yeah like it's definitely something that doesn't get discussed enough I think in our job that there's definitely a physical aspect to it that you need to you know I know I know so many archivists that end up with injuries from work-related injuries so just yeah listeners out there just yeah what what Valerie's saying about you know, yoga and being mindful of your body in the stacks is so important. It's really, yeah, definitely an important point. <laughs> so it's funny that you were talking about that after today. I'm really impressed. You've got such a really interesting, rich career in the, you know, in the archives field. Do you have any thoughts about, I mean, you've got a year ahead, an exciting year ahead um, working in a, in a secondment role. Do you have any sort of views of, of the future where you want to take it from here? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I have really enjoyed this past year is there have been a couple of projects that I've worked on that have just been really sort of like fun projects. So one of them was a book that was published for the centennial of the Alexander Turnbull Library being founded. And so it's um, a book of 101 stories from of Aotearoa from the Turnbull Library. And I was able to contribute a couple of essays to that book project, which was really fun because I got to sort of go through the collections and say, you know, what are some of my favorite things that people don't necessarily know about that are here in these collections and then write about them. And for me too, it was really important to make sure that I was, you know, you know, that I was you know, sharing, you know, stories of a couple of the essays were about um, transgender materials and trans creators and women editorial cartoonists and just really making sure that the, the book wasn't full of just sort of the usual stuff. And I really, really enjoyed working on that. And then the other project that I worked on a lot and also sort of needed a break from, and that was part of the reason why I was, was really excited to sort of take on this oral history role, was I was doing a lot of the COVID-19 collecting for the library because all of that is being created digitally. Mm -hmm. So the digital collecting team of the digital archivists and the web archivists did a lot and other people did too. I'm not saying it was just us because it really was a library wide effort, but for, you know, for the past year and a half, two years, like contemporary COVID-19 documentation was a big part of, of what we were working on. And so again, sort of shifting to this oral history role, it's just something a little bit different, just sort of having that little bit of a break and being able to, um, again, have like a little bit less of, um, I don't know, just, just to have different, um, be able to work with different collections and different stories. Some of the ones that 
I see on the list of materials to be processed are things like, you know, the history of, of ice cream manufacturing in, in New Zealand, or, you know, tales of people that have, you know, lived to 100 years old and, and things like that. So there's just really varied and really exciting stuff in the oral history collections that I'm excited to just really be able to, to sink into and, and spend some time with. Well, I think that sounds really interesting. And talk, I mean, talking about collecting COVID material, I know, I know for people that I know that have, were part of that in different institutions, you feel you're very close to it. You're sort of living it while you're collecting, which is, I, I was just wondering, I mean, you, you have experience because you found your center through yoga and did you, did you think that helped inform how to sort of manage this, this time as well? Uh, working with another collection that can be potentially can be traumatic for some people to sort of be looking at it and also, you know, living through things. But I, I know the experience in Wellington might have been different to how we experienced it here, for example, in, in Melbourne. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I think the fact that Aotearoa had such a different experience than literally everywhere else in the world sort of helped because yeah. it wasn't as traumatic here. And I mean, everybody had their own experience and I don't want to speak for anybody else, but, you know, and it was traumatic here as well. I'm not saying that it wasn't, but it wasn't the same level of devastation that I saw in Australia, in the US where I'm from, you know, that sort of thing. Like we still had a lot of life that was pretty normal for long stretches of time, which is incredible mm -hmm. and so even just documenting some of that like just the fact that you know people went to cafes and it was you know there weren't restrictions because there wasn't community spread like that was a really interesting thing you know at at times as well so and now it sort of feels like it's all a bit different so we're certainly I don't know what um what the next couple of days let alone weeks is going to bring for us here in Wellington it's it's definitely feeling like we're at a very pivotal space in terms of of how we we end up experiencing the pandemic I don't really have any any answers I mean I think the I guess the lessons I've learned from sort of working with difficult subject matter over the years is to take breaks to you know, to, to know when you just need to step away from it and to not beat yourself up over that, you know, like it's, it's okay to self-care is really, really important. And it's okay to say, actually, this is, this is too intense for me right now for whatever reason. And I, I can't say I've always gotten that balance right myself. So yeah. Oh boy. I can imagine that it would, it would take, you know, like someone that you trust at work that can sort of step in and go, I think, let's have a coffee or something or, you know, yeah. let's have a break for a bit. Definitely think that's a great idea as well for any, any listeners out there just to sort of reach out to, to your community. We've got a great glamour community as well. So I'm sure people are willing to sort of help as well. I guess that, I mean, the other question, just going back to the book, you know, the chapter, like writing um, essays for a publication, that, did you enjoy that sort of, like we were saying earlier, archivists don't always have a chance to sort of read archival material in depth because you're sort of, you've got so much to process, but did, did you enjoy sort of having a chance to sort of go through material and really read and sort of take out quotes and things like that for your essays? 
Yeah, I really did. I wrote mostly about sort of visual things like posters or, um, you know, editorial cartoons and photograph collections more so than manuscript material. But it was just really, it was really lovely to just spend some in-depth time with those materials and do, you know, some background research and really just sort of, you know, dive into them in a way that you don't always get to. I personally think it's the best, you know, when because it's easy like when you're rehousing material to sort of stop and you start reading the first page of, you know, if you're starting to and you can get lost and lose time. But it's also a lovely part of our job when we're, we're answering research inquiries. The issues of access for physical collections in Australia has been sort of sporadic during, you know, lockdowns and things like that. But have you found that, you know, access to the collections, have that have they been interrupted much yet or... Has it been easy to still provide access in person or even accessing the collection yourself and answering inquiries? Well, it's funny, sort of up until this week, we've been pretty fortunate, but mm. um, actually this week has been incredibly disruptive because there are protests going on at Parliament and the National Library is right across the street from Parliament. So we've been impacted by that um, with these vehicles parked in the street, blocking access to the library, blocking access to Parliament. So that's actually been more disruptive than anything else at the moment. We've actually been closed to the public for a few days now, which is really unfortunate and, and actually quite frustrating. Mm. But in terms of access during the pandemic, so there were, of course, the nationwide lockdowns, and then there were um, some times where Auckland was locked down, but Wellington wasn't. But that, of course, you know, a quarter of the population lives in Auckland. So that's a lot of researchers that normally would be wanting to come to Wellington to do research in person that weren't able to. So we did look at different ways of making material available. We ended up piloting a virtual reading room where people could look at some of our collections, some of our digital collections that aren't actually, you know, open access online, but still within these secure parameters. And so that was sort of a pilot project. And we're, we're thinking about how we might be able to implement that actually as a service in the future. But it really comes down to resourcing because it's actually quite labor intensive. And then a lot of things that people wanted to access were analog materials and they weren't actually digitized. And because we were out of the building, we couldn't actually provide access to those materials. So there was a lot of focus on what was already digitized or the born digital collections that were available. I wonder, so I'm really intrigued by the virtual kind of reading room. Was that like a software program that you were using or... I guess we can, maybe you could send us, do you have any links for that? Because that's just, that's really fascinating. Well, I actually, I actually, there's not much information about it because it was literally just, can we try doing something while we're during lockdowns, while we're out of the building? And so it. So basically, we just used our digital preservation system that we've had in place for years. And when you're on site in the reading room, if you're accessing restricted content that requires permission, you get a login and password created for you, and then you're able to view the digital content that way. And so we just adapted that. So instead of having to be in the reading room to get the login and password to view the restricted content, the material that you would have normally been able to just see on the reading room computers without that extra level of login, we were able to basically replicate that 
reading room experience virtually so people could log into the digital preservation system and see the files that they had been um, specifically allocated to be able to see. I feel like I'm not totally describing that very no, well. No, but, um... no, no, that sounds, no, well, that's wonderful, actually. That's really interesting. Oh, no, thank you, Valerie. That's, look, I'm, I could really, I'd love to talk to you more because it's just, I'm really fascinated by your work. And I'll make sure we'll do a nice, you know, good description for our listeners so that they can, you know, look up some links and uh, follow you online as well. But I'd just like to thank you for your time today, Valerie. It's been so lovely talking to you. And um, I'm hoping everything goes well in the, the weeks ahead and the year ahead for your secondment. I really look forward to following you online and seeing how that goes. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real, it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm still hopeful that I might be able to get to Australia sometime this year. So who knows? Oh, wonderful. If you, if you're ever in Nam or in Melbourne, please uh, look us up. We'd love to see you. Thank you again, Valerie. So uh, thank you listeners. That was Valerie Love, curator of oral history and sound at the National Library of New Zealand. And you can follow Valerie on Twitter at ValerieLoveNZ. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or at our website, newcardigan.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. If you want to know more about New Cardigan, check out our website for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember, folks, JFDI. JFDI.